I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So in news for our listeners, we recently hit our 10,000th listener who has tuned in the podcast. Woo! Definitely reason for celebration. And uh, while we're excited about that milestone, always wanting to aim higher, we're hoping to reach 20,000 listeners in about half the time. And as you can imagine, reaching more listeners means more people who finally take the leap into taking regular climate action, which is our ultimate priority. Absolutely. And with that in mind, we wanted to ask for your help. First of all, we want at least three of your friends to subscribe to the podcast. That means do whatever it takes. Hijack their phone, steal it, find the password somehow, and subscribe for them if needed. And second, consider joining our community of monthly supporters. Um, as you guys know, we're 100% listener supported, which is why we have no ads. So every donation matters. Um, genuinely, even $5 a month would go a long way for us. And, and while you're there on the website, take a moment to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It offers facts on climate solutions, perspective on climate news, and tips on how to make a difference. Yeah, and the May edition should be coming out here in the next couple weeks. So we've all heard the term sustainability, but you know, probably in a lot of different contexts, and it generates that question of like, well, what does it actually mean? People who ponder further are probably thinking, well, like, how does that actually relate to, to climate change? You know, what can businesses do to be more sustainable from a climate perspective? And how can we as individuals, you know, be more sustainable ourselves? So today we're going to explore sustainability, focusing on those questions and more. But before we get into the main topic, let's uh, talk about this week's reason for hope. Yeah. So this week, India just took a really important step to halt the expansion of coal plants. Um, the country recently amended its national electricity policy and that's going to prevent future coal plants from being built. Uh, however, those that are still you know, already in the pipeline are going to be allowed to be completed. But obviously, this still represents a pretty huge legislative shift. Yeah. And, and I'd read that you know, the, the proposal still needs the approval of their federal cabinet, but obviously encouraging its you know, move forward at this point. And for context, India gets over 70% of its power from coal. So you know, having them stop building coal plants is is a big deal. You know, next and and equally, if not more critical, we need them to commit to a date when they're going to phase out coal. But mm -hmm. thoughts from your end, Thomas? Yeah, look, I think as much as we'd like to think that they're doing this purely for environmental reasons, I, I think a big part of it comes back to the fact that coal hit almost four hundred and fifty dollars a ton where it had normally been trading around that sort of $100 a ton mark uh, pre the Ukraine-Russia uh, situation. Um, so, yeah, I, it's that, that big price shock was probably the uh, kick in the pants that they probably needed to move in the right direction. So, yeah, I, I guess it's a bit of a silver lining on an otherwise bleak Ukraine situation. So, Yeah, and I know one of the hosts on this podcast could be considered a super fan of a price on carbon. And if we could get one of those in place, then we don't need to wait for price shocks, right? That all this stuff gets more expensive and helps, uh, you know, push not just India, but China, who is the other major coal burner in the world to, uh, to phase out. 
Yeah, and we, we saw similar things in the US back in the early 2000s when a lot of the utilities moved towards, well, tried to move off natural gas and, and onto renewables because the price of renewables doesn't change. The, the wind and sun is always free. So regardless of what geopolitical situations are happening around the world, this, those solar panels will keep ticking on. Yeah, indeed. Well, moving to our guest this week, Kate Gartner is the founder and CEO of Triple Win Advisory, a sustainability consultancy that helps businesses develop you know, circular business models and walk their own path of positive environmental and social change. Prior to, to Triple Win, Kate held digital marketing management positions at XM Satellite Radio, Ziff Davis Media, and Time Inc., she also founded a sustainable women's activewear lifestyle brand called Omola and was an adjunct professor at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. She's putting my resume to shame. She writes <laughs> pieces for outlets, including Forbes and Fast Company, and is also the author of Planting a Seed, Three Steps to Sustainable Living. Kate holds a Master's of Science in Sustainable Management from University of Wisconsin an MBA from the Wharton School, and an AB from Dartmouth College. Ooh. She lives with her family here in, in Portland, Oregon. Kate, welcome to Climate Optimist. Hi, Jason. Nice to be here today. So let's start you off with a question we do all our guests. When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, saw, <laughs> um, I saw that question. I think there's a couple ways to answer this. Um, maybe the qualitative way, which is I do believe that we have to remain hopeful. And climate change is a man-made phenomenon, right? And so we, I think we do have the ability to reverse course and make changes so that we could um, sustain the earth systems that we depend on for our health and happiness, right? Our health, wealth, and happiness. I think quali uh, quantitatively, there is some progression, right? When it comes to, um, for instance, EV, battery-powered EV adoption and plug-in hybrid cars, right? Just I think back yeah. in 2019, um, a little bit less than 3% of all cars bought uh, were EVs or plug-in hybrids. That number has jumped to 13% globally in 2022. Which is great. Then we talk about sort of the electrification of everything. You know, the trends there are by 2050, you know, our grids are going to be mostly solar, wind, hydro, and of course, who knows about nuclear? Um, and I have sort right. of a mixed emotion about uh, nuclear energy, but you know, we are we are progressing. Well, that's a that's a good segue. So you know, we're obviously here to talk about sustainability, which is a a, a bigger topic than just climate. But climate is sort of fits within that. You know, since we're talking, we're going to you know be talking about businesses in a basic sense. You know, what does it what does it actually mean for a business to be sustainable? It all depends on your boundary, right? What do you include in sustainable? But when I, if I want to think about a business being sustainable, um, I usually define it as how a business measures and mitigates its environmental footprint. Right? 
right? So that's just really focused on the E and I'm not really addressing S and G, the social and governance aspect of sustainability. But we, we have to get organizations to admit that they're contributing to climate change, right? And, and my, my little quip that I always use is if you exist as an entity, as an ongoing entity, um, you're emitting carbon emissions. And so you have to acknowledge that, you have to measure that, and then you have to mitigate it down. And there are easy ways to do that. Um, you can just take that metric ton of CO2 equivalent and buy carbon offsets in racks and call it a day and say, hey, I'm net, I'm net zero. That's not really doing anything foundationally different. A better way to do it is to say, hey, I'm going to look at all the systems I have in place and try to make those more e efficient. I'm going to definitely seek to source renewable energy right, for our, my operations. And then there's this whole idea of managing what you buy, either to operate or the raw materials that you put into the products that you then sell to your clients or your consumers. What kind of materials are you sourcing? And then what happens to them after the consumers or the clients don't want or need them anymore? So sustainability of business, it sounds like, you know, there's this very maybe obvious set of emissions that are, you know, the power that I consume similar, you know, you and I would be in our homes. Like, are we, are we sourcing renewable energy or not? But then there are all the, the materials that a company is using and, you know, what's the associated footprint of those. And then I'm hearing you say even the back end. So it's like, I've made my widget, whatever it is. Well, then there's this question of what happens to my widget when it's worn out and accounting for the impact of that in the whole picture. Yeah. And so I mean, I'm, I, there's this, there's this phrase, right? That there is no waste in nature, right? Everything is absorbed. There's, there's a symbiosis, right? There's things that happen, right? Um, a tree falls down in the forest and then the ants and the termites, you know, eat up on it and it, it, it gets uh, disintegrated, it goes back into the forest and into the soil, right? Then it is, is food for other seedlings to grow again, right? So it's, it serves a purpose, a circular purpose. Um, but in the industrial revolution and in, in the human world, like we create a lot of waste, right? That's why we have garbage cans out there, right? <laughs> it's a trash, right? right? Um, and we don't recycle very much. Uh, and we have these landfills and, and maybe we have incinerators. And so this idea that that has an impact and that's a driver to climate change, right? that's a continued driver to the temperatures rising and causing all of this havoc in our earth systems. Like we have to also think about that. Um, so what do we extract from earth? And then how do we put it back into earth that is sustaining? You hit on two things there that feels like are important. There's this, there is both sort of looking at how do I kind of squeeze the carbon out of, out of my operations, but there's also this idea, you said the term circular, just like, you know, the tree, the analogy of the tree, how do you, in addition to just getting rid of your carbon, sort of have a lesser impact? Let's talk a little bit about the term carbon accounting. And I don't want to scare people when I say carbon accounting, but what are the, the difference between sort of, they call like scope one, two, and three emissions that I've heard about before? 
Yeah. You could use carbon footprinting. That feels a little bit more accessible to people. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Carbon accounting is literally assessing an entity's contributions to climate change. So carbon accounting, carbon footprinting, yes, um, includes three different scopes or boundaries of emissions. Scope one emissions are direct emissions. So if a company or a person owns, you know, five different buildings, also a fleet of trucks, any time that they combust fossil fuel in the course of those using those assets, those are scope one emissions. Okay. And we just calculate what those are. Scope two emissions are indirect emissions. And that's really just to electrify, heat, and cool buildings, office spaces, homes. If we're sourcing 100% renewable energy, like 100% solar or wind or or, um, hydropower, then there are no scope two emissions. But anytime we're sourcing natural gas, coal, that goes into scope two. And then scope three emissions are also indirect emissions. And it's harder to think about as an individual, but a corporation You know, these days, um, most companies don't own their value chain, right? So, for instance, Nike doesn't. They have designers that design footwear and clothes, and they hand it over to these strategic partnerships. And those facilities make those goods for them. They get shipped back to Nike's warehouses. They may own them. They likely lease them. And then they ship those goods out to the markets, right? To the retail stores and the wholesalers like Dick's Sporting Goods. And that whole value chain has emissions associated with it. And so once they once they have the numbers and there's that transparency, I'm guessing the target setting is looking at the areas where it's maybe cheapest or easiest to reduce emissions first and then kind of progress from there. I mean, I like to talk. I like to ask them to tackle everything at once. But of course, <laughs> yes, you have to prioritize. Uh, and yeah, if they have a very large like building footprint. We say, hey, you need to go in and, and look at some retrofits. You know, you need to look at your HVAC systems and your lighting systems, and looking at gray water use um, so that they don't have such a water impact. Understanding how they're managing their waste streams and whether that's um, all combined, or they have single waste streams that they can manage. From a scope two, you know, um, the natural gas bills or the electricity bills that people get, that's probably the easiest lever is just say, hey, listen, we're, we're going to make an effort to move to 25% renewable energy or 50%, 75%, 100% over a course of a couple of years. That's really easy to implement, either working with a utility or maybe a third-party retail partner to make that happen. So it sounds like you you get your inventory, you make sort of, you know, commitments, and then it's just a matter of measuring your, your progress against those. It's measuring progress, setting goals, and putting initiatives in place. And if I'm a company that, let's say I want to sort of be able to say I'm net zero, because folks often hear this, right, that the company is net zero, the product's net zero, then, then initially I'm having to buy a certain amount of offsets. So I, I'll go out and reduce what I can, but maybe the first year I can only take care of, let's say, 10% of my emissions. So I'm going to buy offsets for the other 90%. But I think, and we've talked about this on this podcast, the goal is obviously reduce as much as you can first before you buy the offsets versus companies that might be claiming they're net zero, but they're not really doing anything to address their their underlying you know carbon footprint. 
Yeah, I, I work with a lot of companies that are just starting their first inventories and they get all excited um, and they want to be net zero. And typically when you hear net zero, it's on scope one and two, right? It's not often including scope three emissions. And so they often just go the route, that first route, which is buy 100% carbon offsets and RECs. But more- And, I, and a REC have, being a- A renewable energy certificate. It's a way to offset your scope two emissions. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I talk to them and say, hey, listen, it's, it's okay. You've done a carbon inventory. You definitely want to get to net zero under scope one and two. Let's set a date in the future. And then let's talk about the paths to get there. So two questions or a two-part question uh, as we're talking about this. One, are there large businesses out there that are kind of leaders when it comes to climate? And are there ways, I'm thinking for folks that are consumers, to be able to to parse through it, right? To be you know confident that if they're buying a product, that it's coming from a company that's making a difference versus one who isn't. Because I just it seems like there's a lot of sort of marketing of being green, but that, that isn't necessarily get at the fact that some companies are doing much more than, than others? So to answer your first question, there's a couple companies, I think we all know Patagonia, right, and REI, but um, like Dannon, um, a huge French conglomerate, they're doing a lot around recycling their water bottles in a legitimate way, and then reusing the, that those plastic bottles, and then supporting water security across the globe. L'Oreal, again, another European-based company that has a global footprint, they're really trying to tackle in small, medium, and large ways the packaging around their personal care products. And then seventh generation, and there's a lot of them like this method, and there's a couple others out there. They're really focused on ethical ingredients, clean ingredients, and then their packaging being really environmentally sound. In terms of your second question and how do like consumers parse out what's real and what's deep and what's not, right? Right. <laughs> it's harder. I, I think it's, you have to be educated. You have to read labels. I mean, it's really hard. Like right now we we don't have the ability often to go into grocery stores or go into retail shops and be told, okay. These are six different deodorants, right? Or six different milks. And we can tell you right away that this milk or this deodorant is the most green and the least impactful to the environment. And this one's the most. We don't have that capability. It's really hard. You know how they say box water is better? Definitely seen that. Yeah. It's not better. It's not better for the environment. Now, everyone thinks it's better because there's in a box, maybe in association to paper, but it's lined with plastic. And as soon as it gets lined, as soon as paper gets lined with plastic, you cannot recycle that. Right now we can recycle plastic number one PET bottles. You have to understand that to be able to make the right choice. And that choice right now at the consumer level is difficult. So it's not easy. Yeah, you're not going to give us a, a magical decoder. It sounds like to be <laughs> to be able to do that. But I wonder at some point, do you see you know if companies were all doing their carbon accounting, they all had their inventory, could you foresee a way where maybe down the road you could have a score? I do. I think we're we're going in that direction. I mean, right now, if you are a supplier into Walmart, 
you are basically required within a year to calculate your carbon footprint and give them details on you know, how much PCR, again, post-consumer recycling material you put into your packaging, into your product, all these different details. And it goes into a database called Project Gigaton. Companies like Sephora and Target, they're also doing this. So there's these requirements on their product suppliers to do more than just lay claim to, hey, we've got ethical ingredients in here, or we have, you know, we use sustainable packaging. They have to actually prove it with quantitative data. Otherwise, at some point, and probably even now, there's going to be brands out there that can't get into Walmart or can't get into Target or can't get into Sephora because they're not doing anything sustainable. And so it's, it's a weeding out mechanism. The next step really is, I think that there's going to be, who knows, but this is my crystal ball. I would love to go into a Target down any aisle and have these icons where it says, hey, this is, this is best to worst from an envir- environmental footprint standpoint. This is best to worst on a human rights perspective. That's going to make it easier for a consumer to make a decision on what to purchase. And I right. do think that consumers out there want to purchase more sustainable products than less. So in the future, sounds like we could have something very positive, which are sort of these, you know, visual indicators that if I'm in a store, I can quickly glance and say, oh, well, you know, I was looking at these three. This one has far and away the best environmental footprint. So boom, you know, I buy that. Which is a good segue to my my last question, which is, you know, how can you know we as individuals push more businesses to become leaders in sustainability? <sighs> I mean, do all that, <laughs> right? I mean, put pressure on them. You know, call them out when they're they're lying to you. Um, I I do really believe that um, sustainability is value creating. It might require some significant upfront financial investment. But ultimately, if you keep on pursuing it and you're diligent um, and committed, it will bring value to your organization because you'll be able to adapt faster. You'll be able to put in efficient systems. You will be more resilient. So I think if you, I always pursue corporate sustainability as value creating. And so as, as consumers, it sounds like really our power is in making the effort to try to purchase products that are produced by organizations that are more sustainable. So we're sending a market signal that says there's value in that. And then in addition, you know, to the extent that we can, putting pressure on companies who aren't stepping up. And then you're, you know, there's sort of the sustainability side of our personal lives. Yeah, I would say know, know where your your highest impact categories are, right? And And for most of us, it's how we commute on a daily basis. And I know we're getting back to commuting, even though we haven't been doing it for a couple of years. How often we travel via air flight, what kind of energy do we source? And that's really in our our direct influence. Like we have ways now, multiple different ways to, to source more renewable energy. And then food, how we eat. I mean, that's probably about 75% of our carbon footprint as an individual. And yes, we need to be more mindful of how much we consume and what types of things we consume. But that's hard because there's just, it's disparate information out there for people. You have to be really diligent about what kind of materials you're consuming. How much is different? We, we have control over that. 
So consuming less where we can, repairing more as opposed to buying new. But in terms of net new products, it you know it sounds like it's still a pretty challenging thing to wade through. But hopefully at some point soon, we have more robust, reliable indicators where we can pick up the product and be able to see right away what the impact of that is. Yeah. I mean, in lieu of that, I think it's just ensuring uh, as much as possible that you're buying sustainable fibers, right? Whether that's carpet fibers or furniture fibers or clothing that we put on our, our bodies. And that's hard too. I mean, polyester. <laughs> well, first of all, clothing, 70% of clothing is made from some kind of polyester, right? Which is petroleum. But then of course, <laughs> the polyester has all these different names. And so it's real. It's it's very obfuscating, right? For a consumer to know what is polyester versus what's more of a natural fiber. That's right. done on purpose, by the way. Oh, I can, I can believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's hard for consumers unless you're just, you educate yourself. Right. So maybe the challenge, maybe the take-home homework in addition to just focusing on, you know, consuming a little bit less and, and trying to be mindful is to go get, go get educated if there's an area that we're interested in so that we can be more, you know, intelligent consumers at the end of the day. I, yeah, I think there's a great power in knowledge. Well, Kate, I know we probably just kind of touched the tip of the iceberg when it comes to sustainability, but I, I feel like I know enough now to be dangerous. Thanks for taking the time to come in and talk with us here and uh, share your knowledge and, and for all the work you're doing, helping organizations you know, march down that path of sustainability. Thank you, Jason. I think you know way more than you admit, um, but it was great to have <laughs> a conversation with you on a broad set of topics. So Flora, Thomas, what did you uh, think about the interview with Kate? Or, you know, I guess in addition, thoughts on uh, sustainability? I thought it was great. I mean, she spoke really well to it. It definitely, though, is a big can of worms there to be opening. Uh, definitely a lot that goes into this this label of sustainability. Yeah, it's, you know, we're obviously trying to focus in on a sort of a an important facet of it, you know, which is yeah. being sustainable from a a climate perspective, but yeah, mm -hmm. I, in having her talk with us and obviously doing, you know, our own research, just started to appreciate how many different, if you had like a, a list of all the things that sort of fall under sustainability and being sustainable, I mean, there's a lot, right? I mean, you've got, you've got water, you know, you've got land use, you, you know, raw materials, all this stuff that, that, uh, extends well beyond the climate side. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like when I was doing research for this episode, I kept stumbling across cases where we saw just like really aggressive greenwashing. I mean, places would even use the word sustainable and then couldn't back that up in any way. I mean, I think it's definitely used as like a nothing word by a lot of these businesses. Um, and yeah, it's interesting where, you know, in America, we don't have any real huge legislation that's kind of protecting consumers from this. But there have been a lot of cases where companies will get sued um, or brought to court because of kind of false sustainability claims. Um, that includes one of the examples that I read about was about Kroger and they had sunscreen that was, you know, declared reef safe. And that company, as well as several others, were getting into legal trouble because they were getting sued for these like false claims. 
Um, in other words, it wasn't really reef safe. No, it didn't <laughs> include one chemical that hurts reefs, but that, you know, the other ones were still bad. So it's nice to know that they can kind of be individually brought to court, but it would be great as a consumer to feel better on a on a bigger scale. I know I tried to put pressure on Kate to give us some easy way to determine whether product's <laughs> sustainable. It's clearly something that's that's missing. And like all things environmental, I'm sure Europe will figure out a solution before we do here in the US. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I mean, we really need it, right? Because how are consumers supposed to wade through you know, all the marketing garbage that gets put out there? Yeah. And I, I saw some stuff about different, like, like you're saying, Europe's going to have it figured out before we do. Um, there's a French climate and resilience law that's supposed to go into effect sometime this year. And then the European Union has also proposed this unfair commercial practices directive, which is also supposed to tackle a lot of this stuff. And that's supposed to roll out around 2024 or 2025. I kind of look at a lot of this as mildly ironic in that they're all trying to push these environmental credentials, but it's so they can sell you more crap that you probably don't need <laughs> anyway. So it's like all seems a little bit counterproductive. On the whole, like, ESG or environmental social governance thing, I think we we do need to take some of these rankings with a grain of salt. Like if we go back and look at, must have been about May last year when Tesla got booted off the Standard & Poor's 500 list, but a company like ExxonMobil were kept on board the list. And it's like, how, how is that even possible when you look at the products that Tesla are making, which are all around renewable energy, batteries, solar, electric vehicles, none of the scope three emissions, i.e. the result of using the product that those companies are making, like you look at Exxon and all that gets burnt and ends up in the atmosphere, right? So it is very important from a, dare I say, it, a consumer's perspective to think about those things and make sure that you realize that you know, these boffins that write these scores are just putting these companies into categories for the sake of doing it. And they're maybe not the most refined categorizations possible. There's a lot of different ranking lists out there, but devil's in the details in terms of what are they using to rank the companies as sustainable or, or green or carbon friendly. Our goal is obviously to help equip our listeners so that they can, they can become better consumers. And I don't know, I, I was thinking of, you know, sustainability in sort of a very generic example, and we'll see if this analogy is helpful, but, you know, the idea of a plastic water bottle, clearly a single use water bottle is the worst. Now, a step better is having a, a water bottle that you can recycle at the end that doesn't end up in the ocean, but that's really still just kind of incremental. Ideally, you would have, you know, a water bottle that's reusable and you could use it hundreds of times. And then, you know, I was thinking the ultimate in sustainable would be you have your water bottle made of recycled products, right? So it's not even, uh, it's not even contributing to extraction of new materials and that that same water bottle is, you know, you can, when it is all beat up, toss it in and it gets recycled to make a new one. So, yeah, I, I think Kate's point where we need to move from this whole, you know, cradle to grave mentality to cradle to cradle is just so important. And along those lines of the water bottles, like I, I take this case in Europe where you, you go to a vending machine to get a drink out of a vending machine, be it water, be it 
apple juice bit, Coca-Cola or anything, and it comes out in a bottle that's evidently been through that cycle many times before. And all they do is put it through a wash cycle, wash the thing out, recap it. Because as we've discussed on on other episodes, like you only get so many chances to recycle plastic before those polymers have degraded to a point where it is very difficult to recycle them. So making sure that we minimize the amount of product waste we create in the first place is is just a very important step because there's a lot of energy that goes into not just the creation of virgin materials, but also in that recycling process. Yeah. And Kate did a nice job of kind of talking about the front end and the back end, right? When we're thinking carbon emissions, we think a lot about a company and their operations. Just as critical is, are they designing a product that can use materials that are already out there that we don't have to extract? And, And then is that product when it is at its end of life, is it something that you can easily disassemble and refurbish or do you have to melt it all down to you know, create new materials? Yeah, I feel like I've seen some initiatives for stuff like this. Um, I know in terms of like fast fashion, I feel like I've seen some companies that, you know, definitely some, some shoe companies that maybe have actually done that, but then stuff more recently with like gene material um, where you're meant to bring back whatever you've been wearing when you're done with it and the company is going to take care of it for you. Um, and I do feel like there's going to be a really interesting moving forward balance between getting those initiatives rolling, but then also having consumers go for it. I think that social component is something that we haven't, I don't know, I guess it's more our, our ask of our listeners. Yeah, you're right. We almost need to market the sustainability component for consumers so that people are more encouraged to do it. Right. I mean, yeah. so we talk on this, you know, podcast a lot about regulating carbon emissions, and that is essential. But I think it is worth pointing out two other solutions that have, you know, big potential benefit. One of those is called extended producer responsibility or EPR. And that's basically governments making companies accountable for their products at end of life. So this is saying to big companies, hey, whatever your your widget is, right, whether it's a refrigerator or cell phone, you got to be responsible for that at its end of life. And that obviously, you know, creates a lot of benefits. Naturally, the EU and the UK are further along. They're already, you know, EPR has been around for a long time. But, you know, there's now four states in the US that that have passed laws. The other regulatory solution that's worth highlighting is what's called right to repair. And, you know, take the cell phone example, because I'm sure we've all been there with our cell phone or electronics. And it's, making sure that parts are readily available, right? And that you can take it to a local repair shop. Because let's be honest, we all know these companies are trying to get us to buy more of their new stuff. And so making sure that consumers have options to go and get repaired devices, I mean, huge impact or potential impact on carbon emissions. I think along those lines too, Lewis, we need to be looking at uh, more durability requirements for the manufacturing of goods so that there is that ability to repair them, not just the right to do it, but so that the goods are designed so that they have an extended life should you choose to maintain the, I guess, wear components of them. Well, that's the good segue into the question we always ask, which is what can we do? And we've got two options this week. Yeah, uh, the first one is... In the European Union, where right to repair legislation has already been passed, we want to ask our listeners to ask representatives to both expand and strengthen pre-existing legislation 
And then in the U.S., where right to repair has found some statewide footing, um, like in New York, where they're actually tackling some of that kind of device right to repair, we want to have our listeners ask representatives to support statewide or national right to repair legislation. Um, I mean, it would be a huge win for both the climate and definitely also for consumers. You know, the other item we're going to offer up this week or encourage folks to do is just to become a, you know, a more sustainable consumer by think about repairing stuff before you buy new. If you're going to buy something new, try to look for something that's been refurbished, right? As opposed to brand new off the shelf. As Thomas said, buy something that's durable and then ideally find brands that have strong climate commitments to buy from because supporting them supports, you know, the work they're doing to to become more sustainable. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks as always for for tuning in. Come back on May 23rd when we'll be dropping our next episode. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Podcast.